Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. Sounds like lawyers got involved. Yeah, something bad happened somewhere. um okay here we are uh episode 202 of the know their story podcast uh chugging right along as we go have a a a special episode today as we our guest is someone we have talked to before for the movie and are excited that he uh has agreed to to join us today uh he was a gunship pilot in vietnam and uh I'm trying to say how um, had a something that you will you will uh, the audience will definitely know when they hear it. I'm I'm kind of trying to to keep it a surprise for later <laughs> <laughs> because if I say it now, they're gonna zone out and start thinking of it. So we're had a, gonna... had a timely experience. <laughs> yes, timely experience in the, a certain place at a certain time. Um, but after Vietnam, became a professor at Weatherford College, and uh, more importantly, is the treasurer of the National Vietnam uh, War Museum yeah. in Mineral Wells, Texas, someplace we've had the pleasure of visiting. Um, although I think you guys have grown and expanded a little since we, we were there in 2016, um, which is exciting. But please today, welcome Jim Messenger. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Hi, Thanks everybody. For, uh, <laughs> Thanks for being here, Jim. So, uh, Dustin always gets the uh, the first the first go at the questions. Oh it's man, our tradition. I uh, uh, I'm going to start asking weird ones. I got to tell you, if we're gonna if we're gonna do another season of me asking the first question, I'm going to start with weird stuff. Which is funny because um, I was literally about to say we give him the first question so he doesn't screw it up. <laughs> Jim, how how are you today? Uh, I'm great. How did you end up in Vietnam? How did I end up in Vietnam? Yeah. Or just in the Army in general? In the Army in general. Oh, oh well, tell, let me tell you the whole story. I volunteered to join the Army. I volunteered to go to helicopter flight training. I volunteered to go to Vietnam. Had so much fun the first year, I volunteered to go back as soon as I could. Uh, that sounds great. That, uh, the media uh, don't want to talk to me. No, no. Say that reminds me of a line. I, I I know the lines because I just finished editing the movie, so I I have tons of lines rattling around in my head. But uh, you told us that you went to Vietnam crazy and you came home crazy, and you can prove it because your first job was flying around in a helicopter, letting people shoot at you. <laughs> yep, that's it. So, did uh, I tell you the second half of that? That. My second job was I got to shoot back. Oh, the, cool. The yeah. and, and everybody think that's a much better deal, but we had to make them shoot at us. <laughs> so would you just kind of hover in and be like, here I am? Or... <laughs> yep. <laughs> Whatever we could do. Get down I'm... low and slow. And our gunships were marked with uh, shark's teeth that we borrowed from uh, General Chenault in uh they, it didn't take long for the local people to say, that's the one with the shark's teeth. Don't mess with him. <laughs> so would you get a, a scout helicopter to fly by then and, and let them be the bait? Or 
No, we didn't. We didn't have any scouts. We just one of a one of the guys in the Huey would fly down low, and the other guy behind. We did the same tactic, but we didn't have a scout bird. We just flew around, and we didn't have a lot of spare time to do that, so we didn't do a whole lot of it. Yeah, flew around and saw what popped up. Like what was your what, what did you spend most of your time doing? Well, I I flew uh, slicks my first nine months of my tour, and then uh, I crashed the general's airplane, and they uh, for some reason decided to invite me over to the gunship platoon. Um, <laughs> we, my unit, weird. <laughs> well, my unit, uh, you had to uh, be a slick pilot and a pilot in command before you could be in the gunships, and you had to be invited. You couldn't just say I'm I'm going to be in the platoon. You had to wait prove yourself and uh, you got invited. I got a good friend that was invited before me and, and he swears that they didn't bring me over just because of the crash, but I know they wanted to get me out of that uh, uh, pilot and command seat uh, because <laughs> most people get a little bit shook up after a crash. So was, I did something too stupid to, to even believe, but uh, anyway. Uh so you crashed and then you got to fly gunships. Is that a case of F up, move up or? <laughs> it was a case, what they, what they, because they were, I was getting short and because they were concerned that I wasn't as stable as I needed to be anymore, they, they would, my theory is that they would say, well, get him over here. We'll keep him as a co-pilot. We'll make sure he gets home safe and don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. So they talked me when I went over. They told me, "Say hey, we're not going to make you a PIC. We don't want to teach you how to shoot rockets. Wasting wasting money trying to teach a short timer how to shoot rockets." So, and I said, "Well, I don't want to shoot rockets <laughs> anyway. I don't care." You know, everybody gets hung up on titles and positions. I, I got to tell that story now. We talked about my PhD earlier. When I graduated, got my PhD, all my daughters were there, and wife and sister and I, the whole family, and. My uh, oldest daughter says, well, we can't call him dork anymore. And uh, one of the others says, why not? She says, well, we got to call him Dr. Dork. <laughs> so, uh, that puts you back in your position. You know, just... Daughters have a, a, a knack for putting you back in your place. Dustin has two daughters as well. It's true. It's a, it's a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um... When you volunteered to join the army, were you thinking helicopter pilot all the way, or was there some, you know, diversions test something where the, the army told you you were going to be a helicopter pilot, or how'd that go? I was in my third year of college planning to be an Air Force pilot. And, uh, and if any of you were around, you know that the draft, if you stayed in college with a 2.0 or better, you could keep going. My grade point average, I checked my grade point average every time I got a grade. It was 1.8 halfway through the semester. Uh, so I went down to see the recruiters and the Air Force pilots always had to have uh, college degrees to get in. And I asked the guy and he said, yep, you still gotta have a college degree. Well, I wasn't gonna get one anytime soon. So um, I checked with the army guy. He said that they had a program that for helicopter pilots and some of those guys uh, got to uh, fly fixedly. They picked some out of that group and some of the fixed wing training. So he said, you'd have a shot, you know, it'd be better than nothing. I said, well, okay. And uh, they choose, they take one guy out of 10,000. <laughs> and it's always a guy that's qualified in fixed wing airplanes and got high time and all that kind of stuff. But once I got checked out, uh, finished my check rides, got trained in a uh, helicopter, 
I wouldn't be in an airplane now for anything. You can't pay me to get in an airplane. It's like when I joined customs, they showed you the recruiting video and it was guys out on horseback and, and on these speedboats and everything. And you're like, uh, yeah, yeah. So I like horses. And then you join and they're like, oh, well, that's a specialized program for our Native American trackers. <laughs> um, how about SeaTac Airport, searching bags? I'm like, you got me. You got me good. <laughs> so especially since I applied on a canine position on the southern border. And uh, yeah. They... I, I talk to a lot of vets now with the museum. I used to travel for the museum. I have, haven't got time to travel and I'm too busy, but. I tell all the vets, uh, I apologize to the infantry guys and the guys that had it kind of tough, but I, the flying a helicopter is the most fun thing you can do in your life. Just, at least for us helicopter pilots, we don't know of anything else more fun. So I went to Vietnam, I had a good time. Flew, flew every day, flew a thousand hours in, in 12 months. Wow. Uh, actually flew a thousand hours in nine months and I went to gunships and didn't fly much. But uh, uh, second tour, I was in uh, sky cranes and I, uh, I was a, a lieutenant and captain at that time for that period. And the, the warrant officers in the unit wouldn't let the captains fly if they could avoid it. Now you're a lieutenant now, you don't get to fly. <laughs> so, well, that's 200 hours. 200 hours cranes, did you, uh, did you drop, did you, did you drop a guy from the crane itself to the ground to do all the attachments or did you know how did you coordinate that well the uh, the guys that were hooking up things knew how to do that we all four of us stayed in the helicopter we hovered over the top of the guy he hooked us up and gave us the thumbs up nail and we went on our way were the uh the areas quote unquote cleared when they brought in the sky crane or did you have some anxious hovers this was 1970 when I got there in uh, late 1970, and General Abrams was in charge of Vietnam. And it's probably not exactly true, but I was told when I got there, Abrams was sent over to get us out of the war, not get anybody hurt, and don't lose any more sky cranes. <laughs> oh, so we couldn't if we could not go into any place that wasn't an airport without a pair of gunships chasing us. If there was shooting, we left. We, if there was shooting, we didn't go there. But if they started shooting after we got there, we left and we took our gunships with us. We couldn't fly at night. We couldn't fly on Sundays. Uh, we were attached to Corps headquarters and they didn't have a duty officer so they couldn't pass a mission to us. In, in, uh, in camp, in, the, in quarters, the company area, we worked five days a week from eight to five. Wow. We couldn't, we couldn't fly at night unless we were going from an airport to an airport. Uh, we could fly on Saturdays, but only if it was a tactical emergency. Now, they had a duty officer up at Corps, but so it's, uh, if, if you've been in the military, this will make sense, perfect sense to you. By the time they find the, the duty officer, sober him up and get him to headquarters. Did I say it was an emergency? <laughs> nice. Well, if you were halfway hooked up when the shooting started, do you just drop the cable and go, or do they have to, to unhook really quick, or you just? Well, it depends. If it's hooked up, we can just go. If it's not hooked up, we could we could drop it. That yep. takes two seconds. Uh, uh, I never got shot at in the sky crane, ever. <laughs> probably had something to do with those gunships around you. 
<laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. And I got involved in uh, Lamson 719, where we could have been shot at. It was kind of surprising they had us out there, but we were, we were part of the prep. We flew up almost to the DMZ and picked up a bulldozer and went west with it. And somebody was along there with us and put the bulldozer over on that hill. We dropped off the bulldozer, went and cut another one. Did that all day long, came back the next day. All the bulldozers uh, had been moved again. And where the bulldozer, where we put the bulldozer was an artillery position. Wow. Overnight, they had flattened that place out and put some artillery guys up there. They were covering the operation for Lamson 719. I also got to participate in the secret war. I was in Laos when the president told the United States of America there were no American servicemen in Laos. And I mentioned that to a buddy. He said, Jim, you, you're not keeping track, man. We were not American servicemen. You can, you can be court-martialed for not wearing your dog tags in the Army. We couldn't carry them, let alone wear them. We couldn't take our ID cards with us. We were in plain clothes, so to speak. No patches, no insignia, no nothing. Now, I've added to that story now. There were 30 sky cranes in the world. This is 1971. All of them were owned by the United States Army. Nobody else had any but we painted over the markings. <laughs> so, nice. So. <laughs> but no, no, it's not. No. All. What do you mean? Someone must have stolen it again. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I guess I'll get to the part that I alluded to in the opening. And the, and the reason I was doing a soft allude is I don't want this. I don't want to bring this up as a, sensational thing or uh you know how it usually gets sensationalized but also just as an eye into history because you are an eye into history uh on what happened there but you were a a witness and to the peers uh commission investigation into i've heard mile is it mile 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 the mile uh as some people say massacre incident um but uh I'm sure about 90% of the people listening uh, automatically had some type of reaction to the words Mili massacre and some type of assumption came up from what they've been told in school or media. Um, and so as someone who, who was a, I don't want to say witness, you were in the area, which is what got you to be, uh, as you said, interrogated <laughs> in, in the bowels of the Pentagon. Um, are there any impressions or anything that you hear over the years that you just kind of grate on you or, or, or as someone who, who has been on a side that none of us will ever see or know, um, what's your impression of, of what happened or, or how it's been portrayed um, over the years? On the me life thing, I never believed it happened. I, I knew about things like that, guys out in the bush too long, being shot at constantly, being on the edge constantly and just going a little crazy. I forget the official term for it. So I knew about things like that, but I just didn't believe they could do that because they had captured men, women, and children, and then they executed men, women, and children. Um, I kind of can see it if you've got a bunch of the enemy guys and you're, you're all wound up with the, the, the women and children thing. It just didn't make sense to me. And of course, 
if, if you had could get a hold of one of those guys and talk to him today, he, he could explain in great detail how, how it worked out. But uh, uh, after the Peers Commission, I was uh, in the uh, uh, trial and everything, I was convinced that something happened bad. And uh, I tell people today, Google that. They're, uh, they're, the Wikipedia has a great, absolutely fantastic article on the Milai, the whole Milai thing. And what, what I, you, you got to understand history, it's a terrible thing, but finding out more details about what was really happening, what's going on is, is interesting to me. After the uh, Cali was convicted and all that stuff had blown over, several of the guys went in and confessed. Wow. Uh, and Wikipedia has their names and what they said they did. And when you read that, you kind of got to believe it. Uh, you know, Joe came in and he said, yeah, I killed three people. And one of them was a woman. And, and Bill came in and said, I killed this many. And uh, the, those guys suffered a lot just carrying that around. That's some really heavy baggage. But, uh, you know. Shooting prisoners is the worst, worst we can think of. Yeah, and um, you're saying you, the term, I mean, I don't know if it's the right term either, but, you know, people talk about the fog of war or, um, mm -hmm. you know, mob mentality. And, and yeah. I don't want to say mob, but the idea of mob mentality is a very no, powerful thing. Once once yeah. that that push, that tip, um, it, it's hard to, to get that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. yeah, and like I say, I was aware of those kinds of things, and, and I'm sure I, I'd be willing to bet you money, but I don't know how to go prove it. I'll bet that happened in the Civil War. Yeah, well, it's probably endemic in every armed conflict through time, you know. We track it more and more, the more cameras we have on the ground. Uh, yeah. that, that's one thing I've noticed uh, just kind of growing up stateside is that uh, – you know, on one hand, the media wants to report as much as it can, but you know, yeah. one of the things that that lets those kind of things get reported is how many cameras are actually on the ground. Yeah, I, I hope there's not too many veterans that are going to come after me after I say this, but the same kind of thing happened with the Jane Fonda deal. Uh, what she really did was bad enough without making up stories, but. There were people in the Second World War living in the United States of America funding Hitler. Yeah. Nobody ever said anything bad about those people. Yeah, one um, uh, Doc Del Valle, one of our guys that we've interviewed for the movie, said that they came across a cache of, I, I think it was bags of rice, but definitely plasma uh, donated yeah. to the people of North Vietnam from uh, the citizens of Berkeley, California. Ah. And he yeah. said, it just, you know, it tore at you. Um, and, and even on the flip side, we've talked with our veterans about it, how Vietnam seemed to be the first war we tried to win in a humane way to limit <laughs> yeah, okay. casualties. And it's carried over into the modern wars and <laughs> wars not humane, but also it seems we seem to forget not only just the, the bombs that we dropped on Japan, we did a lot of terrible things to win World War II. Yes. Like, <laughs> It, uh, the fire bombings like it, it was war so yeah, dresden is a place <laughs> yeah the uh i was people were worried about collateral i've had people ask me about collateral damage in vietnam and i said 
just go back and look at World War II if you want to talk about collateral damage. What's a nuclear bomb on a city do? Is that, it was, those were all soldiers, right? All military people got killed that day. Yeah, and, and it's a tough choice. I mean, I, I believe that it would have been worse to try and invade the Japanese homeland and take it inch by inch. Um, yeah. Probably would have resulted in in more death, but that doesn't mean it wasn't terrible to drop those bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Like, it's well, that's and this is for everybody. Real real war is that that's what real war is. We we don't want to fight real wars anymore, and nobody. Uh, I don't. Well, I think uh, uh, Korea was the first political. War. I don't, I don't know if that, how much, there was some politics in World War II, by the way, if, if and I'm sure you guys know, I don't know about everybody else, but uh, Patton was, had his army ready to invade uh, Germany and take over uh, the country in days, and Eisenhower wouldn't let him go, because we had promised the Russians they could go first. Yep. How many men did we lose because of that plan? Yep. But, uh, wars are if we're gonna fight a war, and I mean a real war, the politicians need to go someplace else and, and stay asleep until we're finished. We won the v Vietnam War militarily Tet of 68. I was there. I tell people it's just like the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. They threw, and I've got it, uh, I've got it documented now at the museum. I know my Reference for this, by the way, is the United States Congress uh, records. The, uh, I'll think of the right term in a minute. The, the top general in North Vietnam was interviewed by uh, an American magazine, uh, Wall Street Journal. And he said, we were all done and all in and done at the end of Tet. We had nothing left. If you had come across the border, we would have given up within a day or two. There was nothing to fight with you. We sacrificed all of those people intentionally, believing that we would win the political war. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Yeah, General Diop. It was it was the definition of a Pyrrhic victory. Like any any more victories like that, and we're gonna lose. <laughs> That was in the congressional record. The uh, the Senate, uh, or Congress had voted it into the congressional record. I forget what year, but I've got a copy of the congressional record. And as uh, whenever I get time to finish it up, if you come to the museum after our opening of the new facility, you'll get a brochure that says we won the war. <laughs> yeah, and militarily, and and over our course of doing this documentary we've had this conversation with so many different veterans of <laughs> yeah, war yeah. is war is a very terrible thing and we should yeah. do everything we can to avoid it but once you decide you're going to do it then you just need to do it like there's no way to make it less terrible and when you try a lot of times you make it more terrible yeah. Yeah, you know in korea we couldn't cross the 38th parallel but the north koreans could so they had a habit of going across the south, killing a bunch of people, and going across back across the line where we couldn't touch them. It looked like we would have learned something from that. In Vietnam, think about the Vietnam, what Vietnam looks like. There's ocean on half of it. Half of the side is ocean, so there's not a lot of battles going out there. On the other side, there was a, a line that we couldn't cross. We were surrounded 
by the enemy and they could attack from any point at any time and just turn around and run back and we couldn't touch them. Who fights a war like that? Yeah, an, <laughs> Americans! An imaginary line on a piece of paper. We're super yeah. into it too. We, uh, that's three, we're three for three on those. We're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'm sorry, but I knew exactly what was going to happen in Afghanistan when we pulled out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah everybody it, did. It was really straightforward. What did you say the other day, Dave? Wasn't it who's, who's shocked that the army who hasn't been paid in six months didn't just stick around and have a gunfight for free? Oh, the Afghan <laughs> army? Yeah, when you pull their air support. Like, I didn't see any politicians volunteering to get shot at for free. Oh, that's right. They hopped on a plane and... <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure my 14-year-old daughters could have come up with a better exit strategy than, than how we did that. But as, as a Vietnam vet, and we've talked, to, we've talked to Vietnam vets and also Afghan vets, and it's, yeah. um, you know, I've read articles on how to talk to Afghan vets without, like, really digging up a lot of emotion that's going on right now. As yeah. a Vietnam vet, do you would you have any advice for them, or you know, after watching what happened in Saigon and and those feelings you had? Yeah, I got lots of advice for everybody, and I I like to say I travel used to travel for the museum and go to big military think shindigs and talk to veterans all day and all night. I've, I know I've talked to tens of thousands of veterans over my twenty years with the museum project, and now I can just go sit at the museum and they come to me. <laughs> I don't have to travel, but. Uh, I, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not any kind of medical trained, but with all my experiences, you've got to get them to talk. If they won't talk, they will not get well. Now, they don't like talking to their wives and their, some other people, but they'll, more than, most of them will talk to another vet, especially one that knows exactly who they were, where they were, and what they did. And I, being a helicopter pilot, I, went, I got to go lots of places and see lots of things. And the infantry guys love us because we pulled them out of that hot LZ. And every one of them wants to hug me. And I tell them, did you forget who took you in there? You kind of had an obligation and responsibility to go back and get them. <laughs> kind of did, yeah. <laughs> But they all say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that wasn't a big deal, but we got us out. They were shooting at us and we were, we were losing and you got us out of there. So, but there's that kind of camaraderie that goes into all, all combat soldiers, all wars or have the same kind of thing. Uh, certainly the world wars were special at it, but uh, the civil war and every other war we fought, you build that camaraderie when you're together and you can see over the fence, you don't have to be the guy was a sergeant and you were a lieutenant. You don't have to be sergeant lieutenant. You're not just Bill and Joe and you can talk about this stuff. We had, I got to tell you one story that the best story I got is we have a, a, a volunteer that's a cure, volunteering to be our curator right now at the museum. She's been with us several years. Her husband drove an Amtrak in Vietnam. It's a Marine thing, amphibious track vehicle. Uh, They've been married over 50 years, and he never spoke one word about what happened in Vietnam. Married 50 years, never said a word. He was wounded, was entitled to the Purple Heart, didn't get one because he didn't want people to know. 
didn't ask for one, didn't demand one, just went about, about his business, went, went in, got patched up and back to driving his Amtrak. We have an Amtrak at the museum and we got the ramp down finally. And the guy came in one day and he walked over to that Amtrak. He walked halfway up the ramp. He turned around, went back into our visitor center, got his wife, drug her out there, told her the whole story. Just like that. Yeah. Now you guys have seen it happen at the wall. Yeah. Yeah, that's real, man. Yeah, but we were. An Amtrak, uh, an Amtrak can do it, a helicopter can do it, a cannon can do it. You don't know what that what it takes for each guy, it's probably connected to what he did. But he talked. He'd been talking to me. And uh, he just hadn't told his wife anything. He didn't tell me about the Purple Heart, but he did tell me he drove an Amtrak and we talked about where he was. And he was right. He was up on the DMZ, and I'd been there too. I knew exactly where he was and what he was doing. Uh, and I think he was, if I remember rightly, he, we overlapped tours a little bit, so so we got along pretty well. Yeah, was that's one of, when we did the project, or not when we did. We're still doing. Um, when well, we, how much time are we done? Yeah, yeah. Well, I <laughs> forgot to tell you, Dustin. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Slipped my mind. It wasn't that important. No, um, when we made our first trailer, uh, I'd shown it to some friends and family. And um, my daughter's godmother, uh, my wife has known them for 30 years. And um, what she knew about, uh, I'm, I'm avoiding names. Uh, the husband is, he was in Vietnam and he didn't talk about Viet and being in Vietnam. And that was that. So I sent... Um, sent the trailer to their godmother and she watched it and then he watched it and i woke up the next morning and i had an email from him and it was it was a long email told me about how he worked on the chinooks and he was a door gunner and and all of this different stuff and so i showed it to my wife and she's like i've known him 30 years he's never said one word one word to me and i've always kind of gotten along with him because he's always seemed like a grump and i'm a grump and so we were grumps together uh, but suddenly just one day he opened up because of the trailer and then um found out that he watched the trailer almost every day and then we were over at their house you know my girl uh, my girls were girl scouts and you know being the godmother bought like yeah. 20 boxes of cookies we're over delivering them <laughs> and He's there talking to my daughters about what it was like to be on a Chinook and everything, just totally talking about Vietnam, but comfortably too. And it was yes. just one small catalyst that I didn't even think was going to be a catalyst when it was sent off. So the smallest gestures can be, you know, you never know. You never know. Yeah. The guys don't know either. They can't help you. They can't tell you what they need to, to get loose. But if you can get them talking... You know, you get them talking to you, then someday they talk to somebody else, and it might take years. But uh, if they don't talk, it's not going to happen. Uh, yeah, and what we tell um, what we tell people when they ask about it, and I said, I think, you know, this movie's taught me about being a listener because as they interview, <laughs> you have to leave room for the editor, and so you know, you think they're done talking, you count to three in your head. And in the, and I'm about to talk and suddenly they say more. And it made me realize in conversation how quick we are to rush to the next yeah. topic. And yeah. um, 
I think also we have a tendency to want to solve problems and, you know, listen and say, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Like, you don't have to solve a problem. You just have to listen. And that's it. You don't have to give them some ground shaking yeah. advice when they're done with the story. Just be like, hey, thanks for sharing with me. I know that was, you know, that's important to you. Thank you. <laughs> we, uh, I talked to him now too. We, we got, we hired a direct mail company to help us raise funds a couple of years ago, and they've been doing a great job. And we get a lot of complaints as a result of uh, people not understanding what the flyer said they, they, could do or we're going to do or had, uh, and if, if they the first usually the first thing they say well I'm a Vietnam veteran okay me too well and then that changes their attitude right up front and if they don't say that then I say so you're a Vietnam vet yes I am what'd you do when were you there and next thing you know we're telling war stories and half the time forgot why he called <laughs> so, yeah I, I'm doing it you know I'm doing it over the phone now yeah it um you know we like to say saying thank you for your service should be the start of the conversation not the end of it um thank you for your service oh what did you do you know it 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 seems like such a i don't even want to platitude um you know and it's an automatic thing like when you watch shark tank oh i'm a veteran immediately thank you for your service now tell me about your product. You didn't really, I mean, it's nice. It's nice that they say it. Like I'm not degrading it in any way, but it's so automatic. They're, they're on, you know, and it's just interesting to watch. Well, an automatic response is better than none at all. I've been, I have been thanked to death. Sometimes I just tell people, please don't tell me that again. <laughs> and I, I lead with my, yeah, I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. I had more fun flying helicopters than, than there is in, I, I, feel, I feel guilty and I apologize to the infantry guys all the time because I wanted to do that. I did that. I had such a great time. Uh, you got my motivation. My best friend's dad, I grew up in Illinois and he was working for the train uh, at the time and they went on strike every other year. And of course, he lost money, but he was sitting around the house drinking beer. I'd go over there. And he'd have a, it didn't matter what time of the day or night it was, what room he was in, he had a beer bottle in his hand. And I don't, I didn't stay more than two beer bottles and I was, of course, I'd been going home, but he go, if I had stayed in the Navy, I'd been retired now. He didn't want to hit the Navy. If I had stayed in the Navy, I'd been retired now. And I said, I get in the military, I'm going to stay for retirement. I'm not going to end up looking like this guy. Yeah, so I wanted to get in. Uh, I wanted to get in doing a war during the war. I wanted to be Audie Murphy, but I didn't want to get hurt. Uh, I wanted to get in during the war because you get promoted twice as fast, and uh, probably shouldn't shouldn't do it. Maybe nobody cares about it, but I give you my promotions. You make E one when you go to basic training. If you did a good job, you make E two when you come out of basic training. That's eight weeks later you're promoted. Uh, when I signed in for helicopter school, I went to E five. That was 30 days later, I went from E2 to E5. Now I'm an E5. A year later, I'm a W1. A year later, I'm a W2. Two years later, I'm a first lieutenant. All the people that went back from Fort Walters to Vietnam were offered a first lieutenant's bar. We were really short first lieutenants. And this is this is a good government story too, because the guy that's looking at the spreadsheet says, oh my gosh, we need 10,000 lieutenants. Holy cow, we gotta do something. <laughs> So they, they 10,000 aviators become first lieutenants overnight. 
the guys that are short are infantry lieutenants. It didn't help them at all to make us all pilots, cap that lieutenants. But now the spreadsheet's balanced. We got the right number of lieutenants. <laughs> yeah, that's. I uh, I almost got written up a couple times in customs because of the spreadsheet jockeys. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, oh my God, this number's so big. We need to reduce it. Um, you know, so stop doing this. It's like yes, mm -hmm. but that's going to cost us you know, X, 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 and X in this and actually be twice as expensive. No, 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 no. Yes, opportunity cost, manpower, you know, what you're paying them, everything. Uh, no, the, the parking is too high. All right, I'm out. <laughs> well, I made captain before I came home. It was one year to get to captain. So I did all those promotions all the way up. And then the war ended and, and they threw us all out of the army. I got riffed as soon as I got back to Fort Sill. There was a letter for me from the Department of the Army saying, thanks for your service. You're not needed anymore. Bye. And uh, uh, they had too many captains. That spreadsheet with all those lieutenants that made captain, they had too many of them. They had to get about, rid of as many. About 10,000 too many? <laughs> yeah. And uh, years later, just five years ago, I think it was, I was talking to one of my buddies who made general. And we were talking about that that business, and he says there, there was lots of riffs on it, all kinds of levels. And he said, Jim, when they gave you that lieutenant's bar, they knew they were going to throw you out. That was the plan. Made all of us lieutenants so they could throw us out at the end, and they wouldn't have to to throw out the good guys. And I said, sounds sounds about right. That's my government. <laughs> so well, I'm I'm a little insulted, but hey, I'm a captain. So <laughs> well, four. Four years later, they realized they couldn't live without me. They called me back. And they started me at W1. <laughs> back where you were. <laughs> I told them, I, said, I, fuss, I had put in an application. I stayed current in the reserves. And they called me up at my office in Dallas. And I don't remember giving anybody that phone number. But they tracked me down and told me they want to know if I'd come back in service. I said, well, you're bringing me back in as a captain. Oh, no, no, no. We're bringing you back in as a W-1 to fly sky cranes. Oh, yeah. Screwed that one up good, didn't you? <laughs> the only guys that could get trained in sky cranes were the top pilots of the time. When they invented that helicopter, they took the cream of the crop, the senior guys got in the sky cranes and Chinooks and flew them. And then as they got running out of pilots, they got into the younger guys, all of us that made first lieutenant, and they threw us all out. Well, the old guys retired as soon as the war was over. They couldn't stand the peacetime army. They've gone. And there's not a Chinook, or not a Chinook pilot and crane pilots were, were desperately needed. So they were calling everybody they could get their hand on. Well, going from a gunship to a sky crane, is that like going from a, a sports car to a semi-truck or? <laughs> yeah, it's a, not quite a sports car, but pretty close. But I was uh, instructor pilot at uh, Port Walters between tours and I was training students in the smallest helicopter in the military inventory, the TH-55. I went from that to the Sky Crane, the largest helicopter wow. in the Army inventory. The, the cockpit of a Sky Crane is bigger than the helicopter I was flying. Not, probably not quite as maneuverable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess you could say that, but it could carry a lot of weight. What was the what was the in hand difference between the double rotors and the and the single and the and the smaller aircraft? Well, the the Skycrane was one rotor, so it was the same oh, thing. Right, all right. They're all the same. Okay. 
doesn't matter if you're flying the biggest one or the smallest one, it's all the same. This hand makes you go places. This hand makes you go up and down. Pedals make you go this way. I got in the sky crane my first day. Instructor put me up front. He said, okay, let's go. I said, what do you mean? You're going to talk me through it. Tell me how to, you know, it's a single rotor helicopter, Messinger. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Push the stick okay. forward. It had wheels. You had to get used to the idea that you had the wheels, but uh, did uh, take a little uh, extra time to get off the ground to get that weight, or did it pretty much once you started? It was kind well, of you're at the you're at the heliport. You got to taxi out to a place and then take off from there. Uh, we did that with uh, all the helicopters. We had to go out to the takeoff point. But once you're in the field, in the environment, working, you just go pick up and go. We nice. in, in Vietnam, our little. Uh, our little uh, place we were living was so small, our maintenance people weren't there. They were up in a, a whole different place in Da Nang than, than the pilots were. And the maintenance guys would fly a sky crane down to our area and they'd get out and we'd get in and take it on the mission. Just gonna borrow this. <laughs> <laughs> and then they had to drive back or like, what, they get a ride later? What? Yeah, they'd get, you know, they'd, they'd get in a truck and go and get a ride back. <laughs> Down in the helicopter, back in the truck. Oh, man. <laughs> the maintenance guys, they don't fly. <laughs> we, uh, They're not we laughed. Pilots. One of our, our very first pitches we ever did was at a video game studio in San Francisco. And um, it just happened to work out this way. But we joke because at the time of day, the best way to get there is we had to get a town car. So we yeah. got a town car to go down to the pitch. And then we left the pitch on the BART. We're like, well, <laughs> we're doing this in in the town car, out on public transit. <laughs> the pitch went better than the transportation made it seem, but it was just, yeah, we're riding back on the BART thinking we did this wrong. <laughs> so well, that was all, that was all fun time. Like I said, I flew 200 hours in a year in the sky cranes. And I wow. ran the motor pool in my spare time. I, I uh, was a teach when they gave me my lieutenant's bar. I was a transportation corps officer. So when they fired the, uh, they, they had currently had a warrant officer running the motor pool who was a pilot and he wasn't really happy and he didn't know anything about running a motor pool. The uh, uh, we were attached uh, technically our headquarters was the 101st Airborne, and in the 101st Airborne, officers aren't allowed allowed to drive. Uh, I skipped into a news story here. I'll, I'll go back to the young warrant officer. They fired him, put me in charge. He had just gotten his CMMI inspection from division. Uh, command, maintenance, something inspection, big deal. He was the worst motor pool in the whole division. Well, you're going to do something, do it right. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing about running a motor pool, but I knew a little bit about logistics and I had the right insignia on my collar. So they put me in there, take care of uh, something like eight months later, later, I left country. I got the same inspection. I was the best in the division. That's a, there's a lot of good stories involved in that one. But, uh, uh, I, because I was a motor officer, I could drive a truck. In the 101st, you couldn't drive trucks if you're an officer. But I was the motor officer. I had my own Jeep, so I could, I could drive. Uh, and unfortunately, that required me to do a lot of extra stuff. I, uh, on Fridays, I had to leave uh, early in the day and drive across Da Nang and pick up a, a load of nurses in my three-quarter ton truck. I lost my Jeep. The commander's Jeep 
got got broken and he took he took my jeep <laughs> so that's the way it worked there you know the commander's jeep okay captain or lieutenant either one yeah i'm taking your jeep okay so i had a three-quarter ton truck most of the time picked up a load of nurses friday night back brought them back for the steak fry we had a big steak cookout we had a barbecue thing was big as a house uh, and it was a two-story deal we had a sun sunbathing place on top and we brought the nurses over on Friday afternoon, uh, fed them steaks and alcohol. And the worst part of it was I had to get up early Sunday morning and take them back. Well, I'm going to go back to what we were talking about before and say thank you for your service, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell me more about it? <laughs> oh, the things road. you do for your country. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I was the only one that could do that, so I, I, I got stuck with it every week. Yeah, shucks. You forgot to do the air quotes around stuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can, and, and the thing is, when people, when I got time to tell stories. My first tour, I'm in a uh, aviation company. It's got uh, uh, three platoons, one, two platoons are slick ships, and they've got... Uh, eight helicopters each and the third platoon is a gunship and they've got I think they had eight eight helicopters too I lived in a tent with 19 other pilots it was a big tent <laughs> but if you know what an army cot is I had that's how much room I had in my space it was an army cot and enough room to walk in and get into the cot 20 pilots in a tent second tour I had my own room we had our own officers club. We worked eight to five, five days a week. <laughs> it's a whole different tour. That's a whole different life. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of hang out. Did you volunteer for another tour? If that's what it's going to be. Like? <laughs> if I, if they hadn't ended the war, I'd have been a little third tour. I, I was wanting, I want to go back really bad because I had so much fun. Huh? How did you end up? How did you end up uh, getting out once the once the sky cranes were over? Uh, well, they riffed me when I got back to Fort Sill. They threw me out of the army. But then, so when they called you back, I mean, you, you said you retired as a captain. Did you go oh. back in and serve more time, or? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's one of those complicated uh, puzzles. So. Let me, let me go from the beginning, though. So they call me back, and they call me on the phone and said, we, we're going to bring you back in. And I said, so you bring me back as captain? Oh, no, 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 no. We'll bring back you as a W-1. W-1? I was a W-2 at least. I mean, he said, the guy says, hold on. Let me tell you the story here. We, bring you, we can bring you back as a W-2. If you want us to, we'll do it. But here's, what, here's the way it's going to go. You're going to be up for uh, promotion to W-3, in six months to a year, you're not going to get promoted. You're going to get thrown back out. And this time there's no recall. You're done. Uh, okay. And he says, if you let us bring you in as a W-1, within 90 days, we will do a grade determination and discover that you used to be a W-2. <laughs> it's hard to tell these stories. <laughs> we'll, give, we'll, we'll backdate the data rank to 1 January when you came in. We'll give you all your back pay from W1 to W2. You got five years to make W3, and, with, and you'll 
almost guaranteed you make it. You get in here and clean up your record, you should get promoted without any difficulty. Well, clean up my record. Yeah, when you get in, be sure to get the whole of your records and get them cleaned up. Two years in Vietnam, thousands of hours combat flying. My, my official record at, kept by the Department of the Army, I had one air medal and one Article 15 on my record. That was my entire career. Wow. That's that clean that up a little. <laughs> <laughs> I got a speeding ticket in flight school going out the gate. That was my Article 15. I had people from general officers on down tell me that would not ever reflect on your career. That would not be in your permanent record. That was during flight school. It all goes away. It didn't, it didn't go away for me. And I never checked my record. I was too busy partying. So, I yeah. But yeah, I, but the first time the, somebody in the Army did me a favor and actually did it, told me the truth and told me how they were going to fix it and turn me loose. And yeah, just like the guy said, I came in W1. 60 days later, I was a W2, got my back pay, put on my new rank. Uh, tried to get my captain thing back and never, never was able to, well, initially I wasn't able to do that. Later on, I got my uh, hip pocket uh, commission. I was a captain in the reserves and W4 on active duty. I actually got promoted to major in the reserves. That's another good story. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I stayed in until uh, Desert Storm started. I was the last officer to leave uh, Fort Hood. Texas, the rest of them got locked in and went to Desert Storm. <laughs> Just but the, the, the technicality, when you retire, you retire at the highest grade held. And after, after 20 years of service, you get the highest grade held on, and that was W-4. After 30 years, you get the highest grade ever held uh, how do they say that? After 30 years, I can't remember how they said it. Anyway, after 30 years, they, they give you the highest grade you ever held. And I had been a captain. So after 10 years of retirement, I got promoted to captain. So officially. <laughs> That's officially, pretty good <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Within a year, one year in Vietnam, and then 10 years in retirement. <laughs> Yeah. So, and it was a, it was a couple, couple hundred bucks a month retirement pay. So worth getting it done. Yeah. Uh, you know, you said you got rift and you had a little yeah. time and then they, uh, they, they called they you back. Um, did having that time kind of out of the army after the rift before you went back, kind of prepare you for actual retirement um, separating from the military? Like had you lined things up or or, or how did that, that final, like, I'm separated, I'm done, this is, I am now forever civilian, how was yeah. that for you? It was crushing for me, because I always wanted to be in the military until I, 20 years I could retire. That was my, my life goal. And I came home with that letter from the Department of the Army uh, that said goodbye and told my wife, and I was in tears. I was just crushed, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got a wife, two kids, no job. I was one of those pitiful people that we see all the time on the street that don't know what to do. She says, 
get over it. Go back to college, get your finish your degrees and get a good job and it'll all be fine. They gave us uh, $15,000 uh, readjustment pay when they threw us out. We conned a uh, real estate in, uh, guy into selling us a house without making any payments or without any down payment. We had that 15 grand in the bank. We bought a house for $10,000, a small house. <laughs> we had two kids, but uh, the real estate guy felt sorry for me and, and on, on paper gave me a job working for him. So, cause he said, if, if you tell me you're not gonna be in the army, I can't loan you them. I can't make the, the deal go through. You, if you stay in the army, it's good. I said, well, I got the money in the bank. I can give it to you, but then I can't eat. I said, if you ever want, if you ever want, I paid monthly payments. I said, if you want me to pay it off, the money's in the bank, I can do that. And that's when he gave me the, he gave me the job unofficially so that I could do that. But it worked just like the wife planned. I went back to college just now. I'm 28 years old and uh, I've got parties to do at home. I don't have to go out and find women to chase down. I told her, I said, I'll work uh, eight hours a day, five days a week at college. I'll do all my stuff. I'll come home, it'll just be family. And that's the way we did it for uh, two or three years. I graduated with uh, two bachelor's degrees simultaneously, not a double major, two full bachelor degrees, wow. two majors and minors to go along with each of those. I was the first person to do that at Midwestern University in Wichita Falls, Texas ever at that school, first one. Had to go see the president to get permission to do that. Why? You I show got, them up. That's why. I got, two, I got two degrees. Here's this one, and here's this one. He just wanted to meet you. <laughs> yeah, he says. He says, "Why do you want to do this so bad?" I said, "Well, look. One of my degrees is teaching. I know I can get a job. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm a math teacher. I can get a job. I can walk into any school district in the country." I'm a math teacher. They'll hire me on the spot. They won't even interview me. He said, okay. And I said, but if I go out and try to get a job in industry and I, I present them with an EDD, <laughs> actually a bachelor's degree in education, they're, they're going to laugh me off the street. They're not even going to talk to me. Get out of here, teacher. So he said, oh, good point. Okay, done. Well, there you go. I, I love these stories and I, I get to tell them all the time when I get interviewed. So. How, how, how much, uh, how much has your, did your experience flying for the army? How much, how much did that experience translate over into civilian life? Oh, absolutely nothing. I became a, a computer programmer in Dallas, Texas, yeah. and I was the best computer programmer in Dallas, Texas at the time. And I'm humble. <laughs> <laughs> but not a lot of flying involved there. Um, no flying, no flying. Did your army experience kind of uh, reflect on how you approached as a teacher um, in terms of how you ran your class and what you expected from your students? Probably not. Uh, I taught high school in Texas for six weeks. Uh, that's all I could stand. I, I bailed out. They, they assumed because I was in the military that I would be one of these authoritarian leaders and crack the whip and everybody would sit up straight, put their hats on right and all that kind of stuff. I am, I am Mr. Nice Guy. I've always been Mr. Nice Guy. You wanna be on my team? We're gonna have a good time. I'm a team leader and I work with a team. If you don't wanna play, if you don't wanna work, get out of here. 
go someplace else. I'm all about doing it. And high school kids at that time, when I, I to think what year that was, 70, 1990, I retired and went to work at the, the local high school. I had kids in my classroom that were, one kid wanted to go to the bathroom and he was acting like he really needed to go. It was right next to my classroom. I said, okay, go to the bathroom. He tore the bathroom apart. I got called out on the carpet the next day because somebody, somebody tore the bathroom apart. Well, were you just supposed to say, no, don't go to the bathroom? Absolutely were. The superintendent got a hold of me. The principal got a hold of me and said, you do not give them permission to leave that room. They stay in that room no matter what. I got to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not staying. Time to go. What, what well, it hasn't other... changed, Jim. I got to tell you, I just had that conversation. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the one who tore up the bathroom? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was 1990, Dave. That was that was me. I, I, the only reason I actually am involved in this podcast is to apologize to Jim. I'm so sorry that uh, I walked out of your class and trashed the place. That's, uh... <laughs> Thanks, Dustin. I'll have to keep track of that. <laughs> Life goal achieved, man. Whew. Well, those things can really weigh on you. Yeah. When, when I ended up teaching college, it was completely different. At yeah. Least, at least initially, but. Uh, well, I'm in small town, Texas, so you can't expect a whole lot, but, uh, the change in, in cultures between, uh, I graduated from high school in 63. These kids are graduating from high school in 2020. I mean, there's, yeah, no, there's nothing to compare to it. And, uh, yeah. I've taught a lot of business classes for 15 years and I would ask them, so how many of you, uh, have a job? Nobody raised their hands. You don't have a job? Have you had a job? How many of you have never had a job? Don't raise your hand, never had a job. Freshman in college, never had a job. How do you get a date? <laughs> <laughs> How do you buy your beer? <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, I'm covered in questions and they're all like, how? They're all how questions. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel like they figured something out that, uh, that I didn't. Yeah, it's like... Um... Oh, and Parks and Recs. Uh, 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 Winkler, uh, Henry Winkler plays the oh, yeah. local dentist and his kids are totally spoiled and they've got the line, money, please. <laughs> money, please. Um, but the, now the Army helped me a lot because I learned the team thing in the Army. I never did teams in uh, school uh, because I was uh five feet tall weighed 90 pounds uh, there was no sports there were no athletics that that wanted me any part of me or anything but uh uh flying a helicopter you got a team of four you got everybody does their job or you get in big trouble that's that's who i am and warrant officer expert in my field and i get things done i do it that's why that's why they like me at the museum i don't have time to talk about it. i'm doing it this needs to be done good i'll do it we almost lost the museum in the beginning because we didn't do anything. Quick story, said we we bought a piece of land, 12 acres, $40,000. We didn't have any money, so we went out and raised the money. I started a landowner's club. You donate $1,000, you're in the landowner's club. Took me about six months or a year to get the money for you to pay off the loan. That's doing it. The guy that sold us the land put a caveat in there and said, if you don't do something in 10 years, I'm taking it back. 
nine years later, I stand in front of the board of directors saying, what's the deal? You guys quitting? Did we give up and nobody told me? And they said, what are you talking about, Jim? I said, we got to give the property back next year. We haven't done anything. And they go, really? (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) (sighs) So I didn't know what to do either. I mean, I was part of the board and I was sitting there waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. I was asking them to tell me what to do, as a matter of fact. So somebody said, uh, build a garden. I don't know how to build a garden. I said, well, your wife's a master gardener. Ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I got my wife sucked into it. She's the master gardener in charge of the seven gardens that we have up there. Nice. Um, well, you've definitely done a lot since then. I mean, you've got uh the wall the replica of the wall you have the huey um up i mean you're right down from fort walters um you 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 had the leftover was it the media uh trailer from uh the bush's crawford ranch um yeah you you have uh expanded since we've been there um you know this is a good segue i was going to ask you you know tell us about the museum how how it's going how goals how people you know let, let people know about it. The floor is yours. Well, we, we did our, our opening of that garden and uh, just under the 10-year wire so we could keep the property. While we were working on our garden, a bunch of guys from the 52nd Aviation Battalion that, that uh, were in Vietnam with it came by and said, told me the story of the Camp Holloway Wall. Anybody in Pleiku in Vietnam? Uh, this, this memorial wall was built by the 52nd Aviation Battalion at Camp Holloway in Pleiku, and it's named Holloway because the first guy killed was named Holloway. And then after that, they decided that they would build this nice wall to honor all the guys that died over there. When the North Vietnamese uh, invaded the country, they went right by there and bulldozed that memorial because they don't allow other people's memorials in their country. So these guys came to us and said, hey, we want to rebuild our wall. Is there any chance we could talk you out of a piece of land? I said, take that piece right over there. <laughs> And they, they raised the money, they built it. We helped them uh, have a grand opening ceremony and uh, that was our second year in business and we've already got another thing. And the master gardeners moved in right behind them, planted a garden around it. Now, I, I don't need any guidance, you know, I just, yes, I just say yes, put it there. Uh, one of our volunteers would, was hot on, uh, Jim, I'm, I wanna put a Huey on a 20 foot pole. I said, okay, Jerry. I don't know how to do that. You don't have to do anything. Just give, just how much is going to cost? Nothing. I, okay. Like the sound of that. Go, so we go put for a it. on a 20 foot pole and the master gardeners built a little garden around it. The hardest time I had was a guy that was nagging me to build a, a replica of the Vietnam Memorial Wall. I finally told him one day, I did sick and tired of him hammering on that. I said, look, I don't know how to build that wall. They've had millions of dollars in Washington, D.C. figuring out how to build that wall. I don't don't even know where to start. And he says, it's a sign. Go down to the sign company and tell them you got to do this. And he'll tell you how. And that's how it happened. Yeah, that's (laughs) nice. I mean, I know Craig Jorgensen went out and, and he walked that whole wall. Um, just, I, I could see it on his face, just as powerful as, as being in DC. Yeah, it's not as powerful and this half size has something to do, a lot to do with that, but there are some people 
that don't go to Washington and get as much out of it as, as I did going. I will not go back to, the, I've been to the wall in Washington one time, I'm not going back. It's just too strong. And I, I don't have a real connection to it like some guys do. No, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing piece. Yeah, platoon leader who lost half his platoon, you know, he, he has real problems going to the wall. But, uh, the only people, <laughs> there's, there's two guys on the wall that I was close to basic training together. Went through flight school together. And I don't remember, I can't even remember this other guy's name, but one of the guys ended up being best man at my wedding. And uh, we, they were in Fort Worth. They lived in Fort Worth and I flew down from uh, Illinois to get with them. We partied before we went to flight school, went to flight school together. On the drive from Fort Worth to Mineral Wells, I looked out the window of the car and said, I belong right here. I had this sensation, this feeling that I was home, that I, this is where I belong. Just outside of Mineral Wells someplace in, in uh, Met my uh, wife at the Dairy Queen, in, Dairy Queen in Mineral Wells, and still got her. Uh, it, it, it's where I belong. If I get too far away from here, I get uh, homesick or something. But the guy, Joel Kohler, and uh, Sam Hunt was the other guy. I said, "You guys remember this? Because when I tell this story 50 years from now, I'm going to be calling your names, and you're going to back me up." Neither one of them made it back from Vietnam alive. Sam was in a helicopter crash. And Joel was killed. Now, you'll love this one. He was killed in a quick draw contest in the officer's club. What? <laughs> Seems the other guy didn't unload his weapon. Yeah, you got to do your, uh, you know, do your breach wow. check before you, well, A, don't do a quick draw contest outside the range or a breach barrel, but. <laughs> Rumor has it they were drunk. <laughs> uh, don't say <laughs> yeah right out of town what <laughs> yeah. so what yeah I... we've got uh i've said seven gardens we've got all sorts of vehicles now we've got uh four boats um you guys know anything about the navy a little bit. uh they they have boats and they go on blue water and brown water <laughs> <Right> shirts right <laughs> yeah. We have a, a captain's gig. And a captain's gig is a boat that he can use when they're out to sea. They can't drive, so they have to get in a boat. That's their, their ocean-going car. They got a, a driver that takes them out in the boat when they need to go someplace. We got an admiral's barge that's bigger than a captain's gig. Captain's gig's a little bitty boat. This is a great big giant boat. And same thing. He rides around in that when he needs to go someplace in the water. We got two minesweepers. All four of those need to be completely restored. They're, they're ugly, but people look at them and, hey, hey, this is kind of ugly looking. Yeah, do you want to help us restore it? You want to make a donation so we can get money to... <laughs> uh, see, those are the new stuff. We got a, uh, the Amtrak, of course. We got uh, uh, Gamma Goat. Anybody know what a Gamma Goat is? That's pretty famous equipment. Yeah. They invented them for Vietnam War and they threw them away. They never used them again after the war. It's a, uh, it pulls a little trailer and it's a, they call it, I can't remember if it's a six wheel drive or eight wheel drive, they call it, but the trailer wheels are driven. They're under power. Cool. Trailer has its own gear, a train. Is it, gear is it geared to the, is it geared to the car? Yeah. Wow. They say it'll climb a 10-foot fence straight up, concrete concrete wall straight up and over the top now. The bad news is they're made out of aluminum. So if you drive them rough, you, they go to the motor pool and get fixed the rest of the week. 
as I say, if you not uh, tried, you know, you got one. Let's go find a ten foot concrete wall. <laughs> well, we have two of them. One of them we actually had running. Guy with, took it under his uh, wing and tried to and got it running and drove it around the place a bunch of times. And every time he drives it, it's broken. And he has to go. <laughs> it's because it's made of aluminum. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what else we got? So then uh, we started, we had a plan from early on, the big plan that never got executed. And we realized that we weren't good at big things. You know, we did this little thing and this little thing and this little thing and everybody was enjoying that. Well, I was doing it also. Of course they weren't enjoying it. What are you doing next, Jim? <laughs> yeah. When do we come to the opening? <laughs> so we uh, we uh, knew that we needed a phased plan to make any progress at all. We could have the big plan that we started with, but we had to break it down into pieces and it didn't break into pieces easily. A guy showed up one day and told us he could give us a plan for something like that. And he did. He gave us a four-phase plan. You build this piece, you build that piece, you build that piece. But you don't have to build the other three if you don't want to. And that's that's when I really got energized. And the guy told us that uh, he could build it for us for uh, about a half million dollars. Man, I can raise a half million dollars. That's not a problem. And uh, I just bumped it up to a million because I knew he was lying. <laughs> <laughs> in a, he, See, I got that time the motor pool really worked out <laughs> yeah well we got uh, he, we got the million dollars in we got him started a year later he'd spent all the money and anything else we had managed to collect and, and, and we've had to fire him because we didn't have the building dried in mm. so, that's too bad that was when we started the two steps or one step forward two steps back <laughs> instead yeah. of well, let's get another couple steps forward. Uh, how can people support the museum? Where can they go? What can they do? What can they see if they're not in Mineral Wells, Texas? If you're in Mineral Wells, like go to the museum. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're really not in Mineral Wells. We're outside of town a little ways. Our mailing address is Weatherford, and officially we're in Parker County. So that's uh, I, I like to sort that out a little bit in the beginning. Uh, I could give you our post office box number, and you can mail us money. We have a, a direct mail campaign company now raising funds for us. And I'll, I'll tell you a little story. We've had, I've had some callers that were unhappy that I was hired somebody to raise money for us. You know, everybody knows about the people that call you on the phone and ask for a hundred dollars and they don't give any of it to charity or they give Keep them 99 of it. So they all figured that we're sucked into that thing. We got one of the top two or three companies in the country that raise funds Anybody know about the Army Museum that just opened? No. No. Really? Whoa. I got a two-year-old man. I haven't left the house except to talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the National Army Museum was built using one of these companies. Cool. They raised, they made every government contractor donate a million dollars. They they had generals raising money for them. They had we had. 10 helicopter pilots with no names and no money trying to raise $20 million. We were unsuccessful. They got everything going. They could possibly go in and they're hired one of these companies to raise money for them. Yeah. We're doing the same thing now. Here's the deal. I've got to tell you the story. So <clears throat> I do engraved bricks. If you want to donate $150 to the museum, you send me the $150. I'll make a brick with uh, 
15 characters on each of three lines, whatever you want to put on there, it will go in our meditation garden and be there forever. In 12 years of doing that, I got 700 bricks. It's better than it sounds. That sounds pretty good. The, yeah. uh, company, the company that we hired said, ask if they could borrow my brick campaign. And I said, well, sure, why not? In 12 months, they had 6,000 bricks. Wow. They're over 10,000 now, and I don't have room for them all. Nah. Well, That's maybe cool. I'll, I'll tell people if they donate to our movie, I'll put a brick with their name on it in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, uh, no, that's good. Dang. Our website has a donate now button. You can donate through uh, uh, a variety of places. Uh, you, the website's a good place to start if you're into webs. If you're not into webs, I don't know what you do today. I, I'm not sure how you do that. You got to well, get. You, you have to be into webs if you're listening to us right now. So you got that okay. going for you. <laughs> those people, those people, okay. Uh, but uh, you have to get our mailing address somehow or other, and then you can start mailing. And, and you'd be, well, you guys probably wouldn't be amazed, but the number of Vietnam veterans that don't have a computer. Yeah. Yeah. What's, no. uh, what is your website address there, Jim? Uh, NationalVietnamWarMuseum.org. I think I haven't used it in so long. Let me get my business card out. You want me to double check it for you? That's it www.nationalvn, not the whole word Vietnam, National VN War Museum, all one word, dot org. Perfect. We'll put a link to that too. Yeah, we'll put that in the description. Or do you want to do the NPR thing, Dustin? That's www. That's, no, I'm not going to do that. Nationalvnmuseum.com <laughs> or dot org. <laughs> <laughs> So. yeah we're, we're not exactly a, a host of bad directions we've uh, got faces made for radio and voices made for tv <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i've been told i've been interviewed a lot over the years i've been interviewed with radio a lot and the radio guys in the area see i got the radio i think i've lost it but i had the radio voice when i was younger and i i attribute that to i always i always have to thank somebody for everything i got i mean yeah, I got my own, I got a job. My first job, my dad got for me. I, I came home from school and he says, uh, go down to the gas station. Bill's got a job for you. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, uh, I, tri I uh, attribute that to uh, most of my military stuff to, uh, uh, um, if I think of it, uh, it wasn't Boy Scouts. The, uh, Civil Air Patrol. I spent my teenage years with the Civil Air Patrol. I knew everything there was to know about Air Force. And that's why I wanted to be an Air Force pilot because I knew what those guys did. They sat around doing nothing most of the time. And when, when they did have to do something, they went out and flew some screaming airplane. Uh, talk about fun. Uh, but uh, Civil Air Patrol taught me all about the military, learned about organization. Probably my organization skills. I, I had those when I was in high school because I was a member of this club and that club and that club and I was in school and then clubs and then things on Wednesday night I had to be at Civil Air Patrol, Thursday night I had to be at the Malay. So I've always had that, that kind of background. But 
What was the question? I think it's just more of a, a, <laughs> a roundabout. Uh, let's just talk. Um, I think we're, I don't know, we're talking. I mean, I, when you brought up Civil Air Patrol, it made me think my friend actually um, lives in Dallas and he came out to see us. We went to uh, the barbecue joint down the road uh, when we were at the museum the night before, but his sons are in the Civil Air Patrol uh, now and, uh, and, and quite enjoying it. Um, although one does have a fear of flying, which, <laughs> but he, he's in maintenance. Um, I, I guess more so, and, you know, we've talked about getting veterans out and getting them talking, um, uh, being a really important thing, just get them talking on the flip side of that to kind of nudge veterans, any that may be listening towards wanting to talk as someone who's come home from vietnam and and had all this experience and especially for today's veterans and what's going on and the experience you have what advice do you have for either veterans who have just come home from war or not just come home but come home or are getting ready to separate or just separated like what advice do you have for them well the coming home thing is just like the vietnam vets it's not different you got to get them talking make sure they're they're out come out of the closet talk to us uh, after this last week of the news media and the comparison between Saigon and, and you know, it's just the it, exact it, same photograph. I don't it, <laughs> <laughs> you, go back and study all the wars and and it's a pattern. It, you know, there's good and bad and ugly, but especially the last two war, wars we were in, I mean, we were over there for 20 years. What did we do? What were we, I mean, we were trying to train somebody, but surely we're better trainers than that. I got through basic training in eight weeks and knew how to shoot everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I learned what the bayonet does when I was in basic training. What's the bayonet for? Anybody know? Uh, I'm pretty sure you put the pointy end in the other person. <laughs> the purpose of the bayonet is to kill. Yep. Well, and like when people say we need less lethal guns, like what they're either lethal or they're not. They're not. <laughs> for, I, I'm always I'm always confused. Like for what? Like yeah. <laughs> we need to take we need to copy our our actions from the uh, soccer people. Instead of shooting people, we need to give them a yellow card. Yeah, very nice. Well, you know, that's gonna <laughs> two yellow cards, and you're out of here, guy. You got to go somewhere else. But then you have to like roll around on the ground, it's like oh my knee. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they the uh, and I never had any troubles coming home either. I always apologize for that. Nobody spit on me. Nobody yelled at me. Nobody saw me when I came home from Vietnam. Both tours, I well, we landed up in uh, Seattle and went to SeaTac Airport at three o'clock in the morning. I was the like the only person there. I got on the first flight to Dallas. My wife was in Dallas picking me up, and we, I was home. I didn't see anybody but her the whole time. I'm sure there were other people on the plane, but I didn't really see them. Got on the plane. Yeah. Uh, Long ride having, back. Having worked at SeaTac at three o'clock in the morning, I can tell you there's still there no go. one there at that time. <laughs> but it's a good uh, time to sneak through. <laughs> we don't get a chance to talk to the to the new vets, but uh, I, I need to put a plug in for the Vietnam Veterans of America. Um, they put it in one of their, I don't remember what they called it, as a, uh, one of their rules that they were going to, they said, no future veterans will ever be 
uh, ignored again. And they tried, you know who was the first people at the airport welcoming those guys home? Vietnam, Vietnam veterans and their family yep. were the first ones in the airport doing that. Yep. Passing it down the line, trying to keep it going. Uh, I, I think, I love it. The welcome home thing works for me. I welcome home everybody I, I talk to. And, and uh, it's usually a welcome home brother. And now I'm brothers with infantry guys and armor guys and privates and generals and all kinds of people because we all live through the same crazy couple of years. Uh, and Afghanistan's the same way. Those guys ought to have a nice bond. And yeah. they need to get together. Maybe they, I'm sure the VFW won't let them in, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, when you're talking about the bond with the infantry, I just want to say, you know, you said you would apologize to infantry because you got to fly away. All of the the blues that we've talked to, the infantry felt sorry for you guys because you couldn't hide behind a tree like they yeah. could. Uh, yeah. The clouds didn't stop the bullet. So it's, it's always interesting, you know, you kind of think about it, you're landing and you get to see the helicopter fly away and you're like, God, I wish that was maybe that guy. Um, but it, it, it's every pilot we've talked to and every infantry we've talked to both thought that they had the better end of the deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If I had, if I liked to shoot, uh, sit behind a tree trying to shoot at people, I would have volunteered for the infantry. I never did like that. Well, that's the that's beauty of America, right? One guy wants to that's fly right. a helicopter. One guy wants to stand behind trees. It's, yeah. it's perfect. There you go. If life works. You know, you just got to find out what you're good, or either what you're good at or what you really love. Huh? I told all of my college students, I said, find out what you like. And you're going to, if you find what you like, you're probably going to be good at it. So now you're good at it and you like it, find out how to make money at it. Because that's what you need to be doing with your life. And, and the young people around here just don't have a clue. I, I feel so sorry for the young people that don't have a clue where they want to be, what they want to be, how to be what they want to be. They don't have a job. They never had a job. They don't even know how it, how things work. You got to you got to get a job so you have money. Well, it's um, I will say that's not just relegated to Texas. So with two 14 year old daughters, they're having the crisis of what they want to be. Uh, they call it a crisis. I call it you're 14. But, um, uh, going through these conversations with them, it seems like they feel and i don't mean just my daughters but that whole age they feel that they society expects them to be something and they have to have the answers and you know it, uh, part of that's probably social media and everyone pretending like their life is great yeah. which yeah. i try and tell them it's not <laughs> um but yeah it's yeah. it's it's an interesting just peak and yeah i as a gen you know dust and i are both gen x the generation that supposedly doesn't really care and leave us alone and we'll figure it out it's it's very hard to raise this generation of you know people are, my daughters will be like oh my god i'm like who cares like whatever and it turns out they do I'm like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i want to backtrack just a minute because you asked me a question that i never got around to the, the, the best answer to about the what to do for the museum what, what, I, what you need to do is come see us uh, if you can. I mean, I, I understand people in California, it's a long drive and East Coast is quite a ways off and everything, but right now uh, there's no cost to get in. Uh, we don't have the, the new building finished, but I've been, I can give guided tours. It's a construction zone, so I can't let you in there by yourself. 
but I've been taking guided tours through. Most of the volunteers have learned how to do that. And everybody that goes through it loves it. It's not finished. <laughs> I keep telling them, well, it's not finished. Well, yeah, but what you got is a good start. I mean, it's okay. Come see it. We can't, uh, we can't for whatever reason, we just can't seem to put the one and one together to get two. Uh, but we're getting closer every day. My general contractor and I both agreed a month or so ago that the, the construction will be done by the end of this year. Now that's the construction. The exhibits right now were, our, our last crisis was uh, our exhibit builder person, designer and builder walked off the job last October, uh, blackmailed us to come back for $100,000, so not paying it. So I had to learn how to build exhibits, and that's not that's not a talent that I have. It's it. so yeah. do the best so we can with what we got. You said we There's don't negotiate that. with terrorists. <laughs> God, Dustin. Oh, well, I was just thinking. You know, there's a lot of out of work artists who would love to build exhibits. Uh, I think I think if you if you reach out a little bit, you'll you'll find some uh, you'll you'll find some sculptors and some set designers who uh, who would really like to have a shot at that. I actually picked up a young man from Weatherford College that's the, uh, been doing the set sets designs and building for the drama club, or the, actually for the drama department. So I've got him on board now. Nice. Drive down to drive down to Austin and talk to anyone on a street corner is probably an out of work artist. But you guys are on you guys are on Facebook as well, correct? Yes, People. there is a there is a Facebook page. I'm I'm. My name's on there. I'm not on there. I don't have time for Facebook, unfortunately. But it, we have, uh, it's you know, the other thing I want to introduce that's really important that I'm not sure you guys know about. Uh, a few years ago, I decided that we should start a group called the Sons and Daughters of the Vietnam War. And I put a note on our website that said, if you're interested, send me an email. And I picked up 20 or 30 people. And then I got uh, a hold of a young woman in uh, Connecticut who really wanted to do that. Cool. Uh, they've got a dues structure set up. They haven't incorporated yet, but the sons and daughters of the Vietnam War are going to take over when all of the Vietnam War vets die. Oh, that's fantastic. Our, our organization right now is made up of Vietnam veterans and their wives. So, and we're not, we thought we figured this out, by the way, when we started 25, 30 years ago, when we started this project, we figured out that we weren't going to live forever. I hope everybody's on board with that. Uh, you know, I've heard that. What? I've got that nagging feeling. I won't either. <laughs> to be determined. No. <laughs> but the uh, the sons and daughters are uh, like say two hundred members, paid dues. Uh, they they're in the process of incorporating, and we'll, it's nationwide. Uh, Katie, the gal that started it, sent out a map of their membership, and it's it starts on the east coast and makes a circle around the continent. <laughs> just that's a, lot of, that's a lot of the, grassroots the, and word of mouth the dead the dead center of the what where we expected to get the most help the dead center of the country there's very few people but the perimeter we got we got them loaded up having driven through the dead center of the country though there really aren't a lot it's of people corn jim <laughs> corn yeah. yeah so all right um I'm going to have to go get my daughters from their very first day of that soccer afterwards. Um, but time, time to see how their first day of high school was. Um, yeah. But uh, 
I, I think they're going to have some more learned it the hard way type lessons today. They're in AP history, which I was super excited about. Um, but uh, yeah, they've, they've got, uh, they're, they're in a college prep uh, uh, private school and then there's expectations and I'm going to love hearing about them. I want to so. warn you about something I do for all the young dads with daughters. This is the worst four years of your life, high school with girls. You know I'm, what's going to happen, right? Oh, I, I was a high school boy. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am lamenting the move across the state for any of the YouTube viewers wondering why it looks so different. Welcome to the new offices of Rainbows and Unicorns Entertainment in Spokane, Washington. But I spent many years cultivating up through grade school and middle school when they had the come in and tell us what you did you know parents come in i was right there talking about how i used to be a federal law enforcement officer and i had those guys terrified of me but all that work went out the the just down the drain when we moved <laughs> gotta <Yeah>. start over <laughs> so but i did used to work at the gun range here when we lived here so i'll, I'll try and work that into conversations <laughs> so but yeah um thank you so much for joining us jim it's it's was a pleasure to talk to you down in texas um looks great in the movie uh um, good things to say and uh you know it's always a pleasure thank you you're welcome anytime right. dustin anything to to add oh nothing that won't drag us on for another 10 hours i like talking <laughs> like talking to ed all right. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, stay with us for a second, though. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end. <laughs>